Well, welcome to the Daniel Artest podcast. Um, this is Technical Talk Tuesday, which is powered by Access Two. A big thanks to Access Two for uh, you know sponsoring this this um, part of my show and everything. And the mission of Access Two and Technical Talk segments is to create educational and informational content that is more attractive to our, our youth um, our youth listeners. And by combining sports and entertainment influences with educators to have real conversation that resonates with our community. But in this particular episode, due to the recent events, we're going to focus on our current climate in the black community, as well as, um, you know, continuing our structure of the interview. You know, um, the flow of this overall show is, is basically always guided by the questions. But whoever is on the show is my guest right here. Um, they'll talk about their thoughts, emotions, you know, which always, you know, more organic, you know, um, natural conversations. So um, with that being said, like I said, I'm Daniel Artest. And I'm gonna let the gentlemen on this panel introduce themselves. Starting with um, Kendrick, go ahead. First and foremost, thank you, brother Artest, for arranging this uh, virtual sit-down uh, and dialogue. It's much needed in our climate and culture right now, and I am uh, happy to be here. My name is Kendrick Glover, and I serve as the founder and executive director of Glover Empower Mentoring, which is located in Kent, Washington, which is about 15 miles out, not even 15, about 10 miles outside of Seattle, Washington. Okay. Uh, right now you guys know what's taking shape uh, in our city here in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, we have um, uh, we have had enough, basically. Uh, and I'm here today to just offer my thoughts, opinion, and perspective on some of the matters that we are tasked with. So thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem, no problem. Uh, Derek? Absolutely. Uh, couldn't agree more. Appreciate the opportunity, man, uh, just to share space with you brothers. Uh, brilliant minds and uh, incredible artists uh, such as yourself and that manifests, of course, in a plethora of ways, whether we're talking about comedy, community activist work um, or just the platform that's been created by Brother Artest. Um, my name is Derek Wheeler. I'm here in uh, Seattle, Washington, and I lead the zero youth detention work uh, through uh, public health, actually, King County Public Health. And so our public health department here, I think we're like the 12th largest uh, public health department actually in the country um, in what is also known as the only county uh, that is named after Martin Luther the King. Um, but uh, I say that ultimately in short, I think what I, what I will add to that is that the work of zero detention is of course this idea of like, how do we get to lock and zero? There's something inherently challenging and racist, maybe even in the name, this idea of like, what do we gotta do to stop black and brown kids? from being locked up and uh, how do we shift the focus from that to what do we have to do to create the conditions that sets up our young people to be happy, healthy, safe, and thriving. And that by virtue of doing that, we'll lock up <laughs> fewer uh, black children. Uh, so that's really the work, man, that, uh, that I'm engaged in and embarked in, embarking upon. Um, I've grown up and been in the Seattle area, man, pretty much all of my life. So pleasure to share space with you brothers today. Yeah, no problem, man. All right, last but not least, uh, uh, cheers. Yeah, how you doing? I'm uh, comedian Aries Spears, but currently known now as uh, Mecca Planet Love. Um, so uh, I'm glad to be here and share some comedic, some comedic uh, moments with y'all amongst all this tragic tragedy that's going on. As hard as it is to deal with, you know, we always got to try to find some levity somewhere. So uh, here we are. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And, uh, yeah. Once again, thank you for, for coming into this. Yeah, Daniel, I don't know if you caught it. I didn't know if you caught it when I said uh, 
world planet love. No, I caught it. <laughs> right. I caught it. I caught it. I caught it. I caught it. You know. Um, so it is primarily white men and women who are tasked to answer the questions as to why Black America is disproportionately affected. A, a decision-making structure that itself lacks equity cannot repair a society filled with inequities, you know, uh, such as, you know, structures that perpetuate further equity gaps with seats at the table supported by the right platforms and enhanced resources our communities can save themselves. What actions must be taken? What resources must be put in place? Yeah, man, that's a uh, that's a loaded a loaded question um, that I think unpacks a lot of important elements. Um, I think lead off of the question, right, and this idea. Most often, we've got white folks who are in these specific roles, white men or white women, who are trying to drive. Uh, some of this systemic change, I think that we, one, have to be able to move away from white supremacist thinking and language on our way to liberation, right? Because white supremacist thinking really has a strong, what I like to call, autocorrect on it. And so, um, I mean, even just the notion and idea of what we've been grappling with, I, while I'm not somebody who, you know, who supports kind of this idea of, of violence or looting, I'm also going, hey, listen, we've experienced a lot of pain that we've witnessed over 400 years to black bodies, and none of that has been enough to shift change the narrative, right? Uh, we've had even uh, peaceful folks like Martin Luther King, and then we've had the by any means necessary, uh, you know, by Malcolm X. Well, both of those brothers ended up dead. So I think we got to move away from this idea that somehow people that are looting and rioting um, and, and move into a, a different narrative, right, that moves us away from that language to say, Black that are resisting uh, white supremacy are actually in the process of, of, of it's an uprising. You know what I'm saying? Um, and I think that's kind of the the language that we have to shift into. But content, man, with this overall idea of when the Constitution said we the people, it was it was referencing white landowning males, right? And that the institutions in this country are built to support that line of thinking. So all of our institutions were designed were not designed to protect the people but they were designed to protect the wealthy and the status quo. Um, this is why we see such a huge uproar right over like a target being looted and burned down. Um, the highest value in dominant white culture is the object and the object is power, money and control and it's not about life. And so we gotta change some of our language and how we talk about race because the facts are we're still doing what we were built to do centuries ago. And true transformation and change isn't gonna come from the top anyways, it's gonna come from the people in the streets and in the community. Yes, and I I echo uh, what you just said, Brother Derek, because as you know, in the uh, the county that we live in, we're making strides to uh, do just exactly that and merge systems with communities uh, so that they both can be heard and that no voice or uh, words are bigger uh, than the other. So there's no big eyes and no little U's. I think what we have to do is have that paradigm shift in terms of our uh, thinking. So we have to move from a uh, fixed mindset to a growth mindset in a way where we can think like our brothers, our, uh, what I like to call have that M mentality, have that Malcolm Martin and Marcus Garvey mentality so that we can um, infiltrate some of these systems and get the best service uh, in the best product for those of us who have been lacking and disproportionately at the uh, greatest number. Uh, so I definitely uh, concur with you on your uh, thoughts and sentiment. 
public health experts say that African-Americans are at greater risk of death from, you know, the coronavirus. But we also get a lot of misinformation circulating through our communities. And, uh, you know, we fundamentally don't trust some of the non-Black institutions because they do not serve us well. So, Aries, um, how do we attempt to filter out what is, you know, reliable information? You know, I, I think the best thing we could do is continue to have these conversations uh, amongst ourselves. I mean, if, it, it always feels like there's two agendas, you know, uh, and live in two different two different places. You know, the information that we're supposed to have is supposed to be for everybody. But, you know, the more I hear things, all of a sudden now COVID-19 you know, affects uh, disproportionately more of us than them. Uh, and of course, you know, as they say, part of that is because of hypertension, uh, uh, high blood pressure, so understandable. So, um, but I also think that there are mixed messages a lot of times that comes along. So my, my question becomes more or less, who do we believe? You know, who do we trust? Um, because at the end of the day, I think, you know, I need to hear the truth. And I'm not sure everybody's telling us the truth. I mean, what, what what I like about the question is it's it says who do we attempt? How do we attempt to uh, to filter out what is reliable information? And first and foremost, why are we calling everybody experts? Um, I don't think no one is an expert on anything because there's always more to learn about every subject. So first of all, we got to get rid of that word expert because if you go in with the mentality that somebody is an oh, expert, Jesus. then you can do whatever they tell you, right? So I don't want people to think that just because someone labels themselves as an expert that they can come in and give you some guided information that's going to help uh, uh, have a life impact decision for you. Uh, so I always fact check everything, right? So right now I'm in my PhD program uh, studying organizational leadership with a concentration on educational leadership. And one of the main things that they focus on is everything has to be psychic. So if you're going to tell me something that's going to potentially impact or change my life or life around me, I need you to cite that source. I need you to tell me why I should believe in that. And then I need you to give me the link to go and do that research myself. So that's how we find out if the uh, information is reliable or not. And I think as somebody, man, who works in the, who actually works in public health, right? So I leave the Zuri potential work, but it's out of public health. Yeah. Um, unique because it's saying, how do we take a public health approach, right, to violence? I think if anything, all COVID has done is it just only exposes that when America gets a cold, Black America gets pneumonia, right? And so the real test, I think, is when we can begin to acknowledge the impacts of racism and we start to declare racism as a public health crisis. Because the body remembers and responds to oppression, right? And so stress-related hormones release what creates dis-ease or what we know as disease, right? And so there's data to show and prove this which is why I'm saying public health departments, I think all over the country should be naming racism itself as um, We now know how long you're gonna live based off of your zip code. How did folks get put in a certain zip codes, right? Um, it was the racist practice of redlining. And so we can't understand racial inequality in this country without understanding residential segregation by race, which is really the linchpin of race relations right in the United States. And so, Health is literally affected not only by current socioeconomic status, but it's by exposure to adversity that somebody faces over the course of their life. And I think until we can start talking about epigenetics and some of these things, understanding the trauma that black folks carry right with us, that is not just the trauma that we experience because of what we've experienced in our lifetime, 
but the trauma that is also compounded and compacted that we carry because of our ancestors. Man, you want to know what's crazy? I literally used to have nightmares, man, uh, of drowning uh, as a child. And it was, wasn't until later in having conversations with my mom that I've been able to unpack that in a way really that's much deeper with her. You know, my grandfather died. He drowned, actually, on a plantation trying to save the life of a cattle, a cattle whose life was thought to have more value than his. And it wasn't until for my mom that I started to tell her, hey, look, um, mommy, I, I, was, I, I was having another one of those nightmares, and I'm like, mommy, there was horses in the water. That it started to register for my mom, right, that here this little five-year-old is who, who knows nothing about this story of his grandfather, but is yet experiencing this historical trauma, right? And so I think until we can acknowledge the impacts um, of racism in this country, there is science now that shows, right, the impacts on the health of black folks who live less and less longer than other races, right, because of the impacts of racism. And so I think until we can start declaring and owning some of this stuff, the last thing that I'll say, and let some of these other brothers chime in, is I think that we've got to begin to change the way some of these systems look at and have this conversation. Most of these systems only look at data, and we only want to talk about qualitative data, which is literally just about what can be counted and measured. The problem with that is we oftentimes don't address whatever the specific issue as it relates to racial equity until we're on the other side of the problem. And then we go, well, here's what we're going to need to do moving forward so we can be more racially equitable. And it's like, nah, if we just put in historical data, right, and then we take the lived experiences of the people who are actually experiencing what we're talking about on the ground, and we combine those things, now we can start to have a broader conversation and one that people in our community ultimately can trust because it's rooted in the lived experiences of the people as opposed to some quantifiable data, right, that's really focused on what can be counted and measured. And oftentimes our experiences can't be counted and measured by these, these sciences and these things, right, that have been created in these structures that don't reflect our story. Hey, but real quick, I think, Brother Derek, you uh, thank you for being vulnerable enough to share that story about, um, you know, your uh, sleep patterns and how it uh, alluded to you having those conversations um, with your parents about uh, some of the struggles that your uh, grandfather went through. Uh, to sum that up, I think you touched on it. It's what we call post-traumatic slave syndrome. You know, that that is a real uh, real thing, man, that's passed down generation to generation, whether we want to believe it or not. It's ingrained in us to have some of those uh, issues that are still arising. And it's a traumatic experience. And until we can touch on what trauma really is and how it affects the Black community, then things will always be the same unless we, one, hold ourselves accountable and two, seek out that additional help and support. You know, I, 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 I sent out a post recently where I just basically said, you know, uh, them shackles really did a number on us. Because when I often hear white people uh, naively say from an insensitive standpoint, slavery was a million years ago, get over it. <laughs> yeah. They really don't understand that the effects of slavery still hold true today. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. in our thinking, it's in our behavior, it's yeah. in the way we treat each other. It's in our disagreements, and it's unfortunate um, that some of us are so mentally shackled still when we shouldn't be. Huh. Yeah, yeah, it, it's real. You know, I, 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 I be on this, I be on this soapbox in regards to Obama, and and I and I and I have a lot of black people like it. It really seems like black people are going out of their way 
to say, what has Obama done for us? And turn on him. And I just, I just so disagree with that wholeheartedly. And I just don't understand why we feel the need to publicly destroy this man. Even if you really believe he didn't do nothing for us, which I totally disagree with. But even if you really believe that, yeah. to keep doing that publicly, I think is insane. Man, I agree with you 110, bro. I, if, what, it, what it makes me think about is, it's our inability, I think, to really understand institutional racism and oppression, right? Because you can go to a place like DC where you can have a, a black mayor, a black prosecuting attorney, uh, a black sheriff, black probation officers, and black folks working in the community, and the data is no different there for black and brown bodies being locked up than it is for any other place in the country, right? And so we're talking about a system. We're not talking about an event. We're talking about a system that continues to deliver on its design, and it doesn't matter ultimately who's sitting in the seat because there's an uphill climb and battle um, that has to be fought to transform and to change some of these elements in order for us to get different results. So, Brother Derek, let me ask you this question. Does our allies have to look like us in order to support us? Do our allies have to look like us in order to support us? No, I don't think our allies have to look like us in order to, to support us. I think I'm more interested, though, in moving away from allies into what I would call a co-conspirator. Because I feel like an ally can pick up your cause, and as long as it benefits them, or as long as it doesn't require them to have skin in the game, they'll rock with you, you yeah. know? Um, but I think a co-conspirator is somebody who is willing to put themselves in harm's way. And I think we have too many folks who want to call themselves allies or co-conspirators who aren't willing to put themselves in harm's way. And if you're not willing to put yourself in harm's way, because as a co-conspirator, what that means is if I go down, you go down, Jack. Like, we we going down together, right? And I think we need more people who are willing to put skin in the game um, and who are willing to ride and put themselves in harm's way. And if you're not, then you're not really an ally. You're not a co-conspirator. You got to go back to the drawing board and, and you got to find another another role for yourself or another thing to call yourself because there's a role for everybody, right? But I'm like, if you want to take on that title, let's talk about what that means. Yeah. You know, I, I often say on my podcast, it's unfortunate that we live in a world where uh, one voice should mean more than another. If we're mm -hmm. truly equal, then how I feel and what I think and what I experience should have just as much weight as anybody else, regardless of color. But the reality is that's not the world we live in. So yeah. do we need white people to help our cause? Absolutely. Because we live in a world where it has been proven that their voice and that their, their uh, bloodshed means more than ours. I don't like that it's that way. Of yeah. course it should be equal. But if whatever it takes to get the job done, then let's get the job done. And we could we could figure all that other shit out later. Mm. You know, it's like, you know, uh, uh, listen, it's one thing for white people to say black lives matter and say that it's wrong for cops to do what they do. But like you just said, they literally have to put skin in the game. Are you willing to get beat up? Are you willing to die? Are you willing to shed blood? And if you're willing to do that, then yeah, whatever it takes. Mm, that's deep right there. Yeah. It, it went so far the uh, the other night when, when me and a couple of my uh, guys was having a conversation. He was like, if I was out there on the street marching and I saw white people beside me, I would ask them for ID just to make sure they down with the cause. Because a lot of them, as we know, were counter protesters and they were the reason why the uproars and the riots started. You know, so I was like, that's the, 
That's a slick move. Like, let me know you with me. If you with me, show me you with me. Don't just be out here tearing shit up for the hell of it. Like, you got to know the message behind the meaning of it. So, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah but that, I, don't you think, but don't you think that works both ways too? Because there's a lot of black people out there tearing shit Come up. On. It ain't really with the cause either. Yeah. yeah. It ain't and really we, the cause we, either. Right here in Seattle, yeah. right now. These yeah. cats were on Facebook two nights ago. And they would just say, here's the next location. We're going to go hit this landing mall. We're going to go hit this shopping center. We're going to go hit this shopping center. And I'm like, okay, so now it's not even about the message anymore. You're just feeling shit now. you you just trying to just get over it. And, and that's, what is, that's what I'm not okay with uh, out of all this. It's, it's, it's disrespectful to, to what we're doing. It's disrespectful to the message. I just feel like, you know, since this stuff happened, you know, with, um, you know, George Floyd, I just feel like, you know, a lot of white people have been hitting me up like this is new. You know what I'm saying? You know, like, like they don't understand the the, the, the black experience or something like that. You know what I'm saying? So I just want to know in, in, in your opinion. Well, it's it's new, it's, it's yeah. new for them. Yeah, but this stuff been going on for years, though. You know what I'm saying? Like, they, it really kicked in, like, since, you know, Trayvon Martin, you know, um, un, um, untimely demise, you know? Yeah. So I, I sometimes I don't understand, like, you know, why... Why is it new? So just explain to, to these new white people or whatever, what's, what it's like to be black in America. I'm gonna reference one of my jokes. Uh, I put it to you like this, you know, when we drive in our cars and we hear that noise, that whoop whoop, and we see them lights flash in the rear view, uh, we get what's called the hot booty rim hole. Like white people, you know, that, that's that feeling you get when you think you got the fart, but realize you got the shit. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> white people, get angry when they get pulled over because they can't they don't have they can't believe the police had the audacity to pull them over yeah. black people we get uncomfortable mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying so we get that hot booty remote because we know that that situation can end a certain kind of way come on quick yeah. you know i've been during this 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 covid 19 shit and this quarantine i've been i've been getting a chance to you know catch up on some shows i've always wanted to watch yeah. And I've been watching this show for the first time, Sons of Anarchy. Mm. And about three seasons in, it's really starting to hit me like white people just have a special relationship with the police. They can tell them, kiss my ass, fuck off, fuck you, go fuck yourself, and carry guns openly. Mm-hmm. Niggas, we can't do that. And the worst that the cop is going to tell them is, all right, now that's enough, Tim. You know, they, they, they know I'm on a first name basis. There's a certain familiarity with one another and a, and, a, and, a, and a comfortableness that we just don't have. Well, you got to think, most of them grew up together. They're in these little small towns. They went to high school together. They played football together. You know, they went off to, 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 to college and all that stuff together. And now they come back. It's the good old buddy system. You know, if you look like me, if it ain't white, it ain't right. You know, that's sometimes what we hear in the community. You know, and it's not to you know, point fingers are, you know, are down talking is just the truth. And sometimes I think that the truth is what needs to be told. And if you can't accept that, then maybe this is, you know, not the lane for you. Yeah. I, 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 I got a question for all of you. Okay. If I could, I'm sorry. I just want to ask all of y'all your, your personal opinion. How do you feel? Do you, how do you feel about Obama? Do you, do you agree that he didn't do anything for black people? And if so, I want to know what your stance on that is. Hmm. That's a good question. Um, 
you know, I, I'm not really a, a, a politician type of person. You know what I'm saying? Me, you know, I'm 37. But I, I was I was younger when he was in office. So, like, my opinion on it was, and I, I was also, you know, playing basketball abroad, too. So, like, I really was, like, I was just happy that it was a black man in there, something that we never seen before, something that I thought that we would never see in our lives. You know what I'm saying? As far as, you know, what, did he do anything? I just felt like sometimes he was too nice. You know, I just felt like when 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 people would, you know, hit at him, he didn't really hit back. You know, he was just trying to be, like, you know, more like Martin. Where well in this era, you know, you you really gotta, you know, you gotta face hate with 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 force. You can't go into a hate fight with a hug. You know what I'm saying? You liable not to come home that night. So that's why I thought my opinion on it. I thought that he could have been a little bit more, you know, harsh on on the issues. But that's just me. I mean, I'll I'll, I'll keep it brief. What I what I think about it is that uh, two things I always tell people: I don't like talking politics or religion with friends. Right. Uh, however, I think this uh, this conversation deserves um, a little bit more in depth. Uh, the reasons I say that. However, I think Obama, Barack Obama, has was the greatest president the United States has ever seen and will ever see. First and foremost, you have to understand the time that he came into an office and took over. Right. There's no other president in history that came in with the cleanup that he had to do. Uh, I appreciate him as a black man, giving me an opportunity to say, you know what? I can go out and start my own company. I can teach other young black brothers to go out and do things the right way, right? That was so influential to me that there's never a time in history would I ever disrespect his name, his character, or his legacy. So I think he did everything right for black people, in my opinion. There's nothing he did wrong. He did more for us than anybody in history is going to ever do for us. Just by sitting in that seat, that power of sitting in that seat has something that no man, woman, boy, or girl could ever take away from us. Just being there alone meant enough to me. So that's my opinion. You know, Obama, man, was demonized, really, right? Like as a threat to the American way of life as a black man. I mean, they don't talk about it, but there was foiled assassination attempts, you know, even as this man like moved forward with this steely resolve to become the president of the United States. He did it the right way. He went to Columbia, then on to Harvard, where he becomes the first African-American president of the law review, graduates at the top of his class. So it couldn't be about this demonization of a sartorial choice. It wasn't, as, it's, it's never as simple and cut and dry for us as black folks. It's like, cut your dreads off. Don't wear a hoodie. Stay out of this neighborhood. Speak proper English. Like, it ain't got nothing to do with none of that, right? It's the fact that you got a black body and that there is always going to be an uphill climb and the challenge, I think, for a black person that works any time within the institution is that there's going to always be these unrealistic expectations because we have created this model where we want people to, we, we're looking for a hero, right? We think there's going to be some hero that's going to come somehow and going to save the day. And the truth is, is that we got to move away from that kind of thinking. I talked in the beginning about Eurocentric models and these Eurocentric ideas. How do we move away from this concept and this idea of a hero to this idea of a host. How do we show up as hosts? And if we saw Obama as a host, we would have taken another level of responsibility in our communities to know that we're not even organized in the kind of way right. to be able to support Obama to have the kind of agenda that he would have needed to have to be able to even institute or implement anything because we lack power, because we don't understand that politicians are paid, right? And then they're pushed into positions to be able to implement a specific agenda. And so what did we put in place as a group or as a people? You look at some of the platforms that he pushed, 
those were groups who organized financially to be able to push specific agendas. And I think we tend to sit back, apply pressure to each other and be like, ah, uh, Kendrick got it. And then when Kendrick doesn't deliver, we're like, ah, man, he ain't did nothing for the people. And I think we've got to organize better as a collective. Stop pretending that there's one person, Superman somehow, that's going to come and save the day. And we got to organize as a people and have an agenda that we want to work from. But the truth is, most often, man, we get caught up on petty stuff. Black folks, we always feel in some kind of way. Well, who's doing it? Oh, Kendrick's leading it? I don't really, I don't really fuck with Kendrick. Like, right? Like, we get into all of this stuff that it's like, so you're going to throw away an entire movement because you disagree about one thing in reference to, like, how somebody shows up and holds space. And I think, man, it's a vicious cycle that we're in. And until we can break that and organize, we're going to never really be able to hold any of these different politicians that are black or anybody that's in positions of power accountable because what are we holding them accountable to? And how are we showing up to be able to support that? Yeah, listen, I, I, I get it. Um, you know, I hear black people say, well, what policies did he put in place for us? He took care of the lesbians and the transgender community. Uh, and, I, and I said, you know, before, look, Let's be honest, this is America. Gays and transgenders ain't niggas. Our resumes have never been put to the top of the pile. And to quote my man, Dave Chappelle, who I think is one of the most brilliant minds in comedy, he said, have you ever asked a question in his equanimity special, why was it easier for Bruce Jenner to change his sex than it was for Muhammad Ali to change his fucking name? Come on. So, not on t and on top of that, Mitch McConnell already said that he would try to block everything Obama would try and do. But I think right. it would be naive and foolish to believe that out of all of Obama's accomplishments, black people didn't benefit from any of it. Mm. I understand what they wanted him to do directly, but they also have to take into account that his hands were tied. And, al and also my question becomes, when did we as black people become so comfortable that cultural symbolism didn't matter anymore? I, I, th I think it's very saddening and disheartening when I hear black women go, fuck the Obamas. Really? Michelle Obama, the first black, uh, uh, the first black, uh, uh, first lady, first black first lady. So our girls have always been born and bred to believe that their skin is a sin. Look at you with your big lips and your wide nose and your kinky hair. So here comes Michelle Obama, a dark skinned woman, intelligent, sophisticated, classy, carries herself with excellence, successful, and you mean to tell me that if there's a, a black girl out there somewhere of a young age suffering from self-esteem self and is feeling suicidal because she's being attacked at school for those very same features, that Michelle Obama serves as a beacon of hope to pull her out of that or to inspire her to be the first black president female. That, that kind of cultural symbolism is not important. When do we get so comfortable that where we can go, we don't need that. Fuck mm. that. Mm. I mean, I just don't understand that. How, when did we get that complacent? Racism has impacted us as black people, right? And what we never talk about is, you know, I think racism shows up for white people as, as IRS, right? Internalized racial superiority. I think it plays itself out for us as internalized racial oppression. And I think because we never <clears throat> impact our own internalized racial oppression, we're not aware of the ways that we continue to show up and hold space that actually purports and supports white supremacy, right? And so many of us are in spaces where we're supporting the agenda and we're not even aware of it because we haven't slowed down enough to do our own work to start unpacking, right? Because you can't swim and not get wet. 
Yeah. Right. And so we can't be in a racist system and not think somehow that it hasn't impacted us. You know what I'm saying? And our thinking and our ways of being and our ways of engaging and how we hold space and the language that we speak that comes out of our mouth that comes from these ways of socialization that have impacted us. And so to your point, bro, I think I think that's a big part of the challenge. How do we slow down enough to be like, wait a minute, man, how am I showing up and holding space? And what are the ways that this disease of racism, right, has infected me and impacted me and impacted my mental model? So let me let me let me pose this question. Is 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 code switching good or bad? Because on one hand, it allows you to be in a room with those who may not uh, who may not oftentimes get to be in the room with. But then on the other hand, it could seem like that you are going outside of your normal self to fit into a model that's not really for you. So I, I, I'm asking that question for my own selfish reason. I, I, I think personally that what, what this whole conversation centers around is this idea of belonging. Because in the beginning, when they said, we the people, they were talking about free land-owning white males. And all the institutions are, are built to support and to preserve that reality, right? So if we're going to actually build the table, which I think you had mentioned in your first question, Daniel, about this idea of like, how do you build the table? It's really this idea. We're not asking you to, it's, just, it's creating a space for belonging. How do we bridge across difference in ways that lets other people come to the table? And how do we normalize this? How do we normalize multiple perspectives? Because right now there's one white dominant narrative that typically drives all of the thinking that actually continues to support white supremacist thinking in these institutions. How do we normalize this idea that all perspectives are valid, but all perspectives are partial? So sure, you can pull up, and as a white person, you can have these concepts or ideas, but that's only a piece, right, of the story. You're only seeing in part, and that there's this collective learning process that we all have to go through that takes collective learning, and we can only do that by getting in space and understanding that different is not deficient. And see, and here's my problem with, and I'm going to get to your question, here's my problem, Kendrick, I think, with having to code switch. When I code switch and I come into a space, I actually just shrunk that space even more as a black person. You know why? Because the next black man that comes behind me, he's got to be able to code switch as good as me or better than me because the expectations of the white folks in that space are, well, damn, why can't Daryl be more like Derek? Because then the thinking is that all black people are like that. What we really need is to be able to come into spaces that allow us to bring our full humanity. And when I don't got to strip myself of who I am by coming into the space, then we just expanded that space and we created a space where belonging is actually starting to take place, where transformation starts to take place. Because if I got a code switch, that means we're allowing white folks to remain in this space of comfort, which, which means we'll never change. We only, we only change when we're uncomfortable, right? So that means you got to let me be able to pull up and bring myself into the space. Hmm. You know, I, I, it's funny, I, if, if code switch means what I think it means, I, I just, you know, and again, if, to, if there are any white people that watch this, I love you, and I know not all white people are racist, but as a race, you guys are known for racism. So I'm not trying to put y'all all in the same bowl, but I, I, I'm enamored by the hypocrisy of, of, of this, because it's like, why do we always have to go out of our way to make someone feel comfortable who has always historically given us every reason to be uncomfortable. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like, it's, it's like I said on, on my Vlad TV interview, white folks have pulled off the jet, the, the greatest Jedi mind trick in history to somehow have convinced the world 
that black people are dangerous, particularly black men, when historically white people have created, the, the, have committed the most violence, heinous acts of murder and mayhem of any other race on the planet. But this stigma that exists that black men are boogeymen is unfucking believable to me. History has shown you otherwise. We have not assassinated their leaders. We don't bomb churches, killing their children. We ain't shot them with water hoses, dogs, German shepherds, whatever, hung them from trees, raped, pillaged, stolen land, stripped of identity. We've done none of those things. Injected them with diseases. A fucked up judicial system. Come on. Come on, man. So the fact that we got to figure out a way, how do we make them feel comfortable today? That's insane. Man, this whole notion and this idea of like, of even just, I'm thinking about like white women, right? And this ability just to be like, I don't feel safe. It's like, the truth is, is that that is a distortion of historical truth. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm thinking about Amy Cooper, right? The white woman in Central Park who called the cops on a, on a black man yeah. who basically knew that all she had to do was use specific language, right? Around her as a white woman not feeling safe. And so this whole notion is perverted and distorted. How do we flip and change that narrative to the truth, which is as a black man, if there's anybody that doesn't feel safe, you know what I'm saying? In this country, it's me. I mean, even while bird watching, right? Black folks are an endangered species. And so this conversation, I think, is really about how when whiteness, and I want to be clear, when I'm speaking to whiteness for our white brothers and sisters who might be tuned in, I'm not so much talking about property of skin, as much as we're talking about a social power that reproduces its dominance in both explicit and implicit ways, right? And so when whiteness becomes a practice or an exercise, you will, it takes superiority over the black body and it monopolizes that power of destroying or demeaning the black body. So the legal system is engaged in reproducing whiteness, right? When it decides that a black person is going to be punished more severely than a white person who commits the same infraction. And when a white person says, I don't feel safe, that's a distortion of that truth. Because if there's anybody that feels safe in any situation in this country, it's a white woman, Jack. I'm sorry. Yeah. My, listen, my jaw is still on the floor at the fact that niggas is bird watching. When did we start doing that? I ain't gonna lie to you. If I saw a nigga in the bushes in the day looking at birds, I'd be Oh, man. Listen, I'm gonna tell you something deep, man. One of my uh, one of my mentors was I was chopping it up with him, man. This cat Cortland Butts, man. He was telling me because we were talking about there's this group outdoor Afro, right? And they're all over the country, and it's literally about getting black folks out and into nature and engaging in all these ways. So we were talking about it, uh, because he's engaged in a lot of stuff to that degree, and I was like, ah, man, you about to go hiking? That's that white folks stuff. And he said something, man, that I thought was really powerful. He said, "Is that white folks stuff?" Or is that a way of being for a people who move freely through the earth who have never experienced 400 years of oppression? Hmm. That's nice. hey, let, me, let, me, let me tell you something. This is a joke. This is a joke I'm actually working on. And this is why I do envy white people. Because I hear what you're saying about is that white, white folk stuff? Some things are white folk stuff. Niggas <laughs> ain't playing with lions. Right. We wear lions. We don't play with them. But <laughs> all I'm saying is I envy white people to an extent because of their freedom and the fact yeah. that they've never heard the word no. They don't have boundaries. It's mm -hmm. the reason why they do anything and everything. 
Black yeah. people, we are we are accustomed to boundaries. No nigga, you can't do this. No nigga, you can't do that. Nigga, sit in the back. Nigga, go in that washroom. Even our own parents, nigga, put that down. So we are accustomed to, to guidelines. When you have a race of people that have never been told no, that's why they do what they do, baby. Kiss that lion in the mouth? Why not? Swimming with sharks? Of course. You know, all the wild shit they do, nigga, they bored. They've done everything else. It's real. It's real. Um, hey, so Aries, let me ask you a question. You know, you're a legendary comedian. I, I know that we probably all grew up on your movies and your and your shows and everything like that. When you're doing comedy and, and, and you get into the whole um, race relations issues, you know, do you do you make it uncomfortable? Do you or you try not to? Do you like mess with the line of uncomfortable? Um, as far as like having your white audience in there, I purposely serve blue magic, uncut, un uncut Bolivian yayo, nigga. I don't believe in sugarcoating anything. Um, I come from that era of Pryor, Murphy, Paul Mooney, George Carlin, um, mm. and I've done my homework, you know, uh, and I think that this era is so moist now, it's sickening. Uh, mm. And good comedy is supposed to make you feel slightly uncomfortable. You know, if you look at the best that ever did it, uh, Patrice O'Neal, God rest his soul. Dave Chappelle, Chris Rock, D.L. Hewley, Eddie Griffin. Great comedy is supposed to make you squirm a little bit. Um, now, I don't believe in doing shock value just for the sake of doing shock value. Uh, I think that when you, can when you can perfectly marry taboo, controversial subjects with great intellect and gut-busting humor, that's what defines greatness. Mm. Mm. What are your thoughts about, uh, in that light, our brother uh, Dave Chappelle, man, who I feel like so brilliantly toes that line that you're talking about? Because I feel like the great the great comedians have this capacity to, like, turn up the heat so that it's not so high that people, to your point, want to disengage, but it's not so low that there's no discomfort. And it's almost like you're laughing. And for some folks I've seen, it's like you're in a space and it's like getting your head cut off. And you don't really know your head got cut off till you get up, you know, to walk away and it falls in your lap. Because you were laughing so hard, right. but at the same time, there were some hard truths, you know what I'm saying, that are that are being told in that process. So what, what, are, you, what are your thoughts about Chappelle, man, who told that line? I, I think Dave Chappelle is, is the greatest comedic mind of this generation. Uh, I think everybody's trying to play catch up and figure out how to be on that level. Um, and again, i got to give a shout out to my man, God rest his soul, Patrice O'Neill was right there. Patrice was a monster. Uh, for those that don't know him, look this man up. Elephant in the room. YouTube him on, on Opie and Anthony radio show. This motherfucker was a, a, a juggernaut. Um, mm -hmm. So, I, again, I like that kind of comedy. Um, I, I, can't, I can't fall prey to this new moist era of sensitivity. It just doesn't do it for me. And, um, and staying and staying on and staying on comedy with you, uh, you know, there's a shift happening in today's workforce with the you know gig mentality. You know, what's your take on the workforce shining more light and entrepreneurship in the gig mentality? Since you know, being a comedian is primarily like you're, you're built on your own personal brand. Well, you know, I'm trying to become more financially literate, uh, and you know, as they say, you know, real money is having 
seven different streams of income. And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's hard for anybody to make it in show business, regardless of color. But let's be honest, this business was not for us. Uh, mm. Hollywood is white people's fubu for us, by us. Yeah. So they just so happen to let us play in this game because we're very profitable. Mm. Um, I'm saying that to say we got to have more than one hustle. You know, we got to have it can't just be show business because at any point until you reach a level where you're undeniable at any point, they can pull the rug from under you and you don't want nobody telling you when, when, and when you can't eat. So, you know, you got to try to dabble in other things, real estate, stocks, bonds, anything you could do to, 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 uh, lengthen your portfolio is a must. Hmm. So let me ask you a question, another question. Um, do you remember like when you received like your first big check from comedy? Like what was your first purchase? Did you have any regrets, anything that, that you were proud of? A lot of regrets. Uh, I, I went out and bought all, I made all my nigga purchases. Uh, car, <laughs> diamonds, necklaces, bracelets, uh, money on holes, sneakers. Um, I did all that shit. Um, and, but you know what? You young. And when you're yeah. young and you don't come from nothing, you know, that's a big deal to you. Uh, yeah. But as you continue to grow, you realize that the real money is not what's on your wrist. It's yeah. on titles. You know yeah, what I mean? Exactly. It's, yes, it's sir, on yes, deeds. Sir. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, that's what I'm into now. Yeah, I could tell you some, when my brother first got his, his, his checks or whatever, when he made it to the NBA, you know, he's 19. So, you know, gave him money he spent his whole damn rookie deal in one year you know i remember one time hey, like you know he had to borrow money from me i was 16 at the time you know so <laughs> yeah yeah so uh, your brother was wild and i remember reading hey fellas real quick I just, I just illustrated about him having uh he literally had like gold woven into a suit like a tailored suit that he had made i said no that, that that's no the the only the only that that, that was false the only story about my brother that? The only story about my brother that's true when he was young was he actually did apply, got hired to work at Circuit City while he was in the NBA. And he did it. He worked, but that's he but that's the, but that's the that's the part of your brother that's fucking crazy. <laughs> we know your brother crazy, nigga. He really he, he nigga crazy. <laughs> yeah. So what wakes you up every day to make people laugh? Like, and what also you know drove you to start a podcast? Uh, I gotta get away from my two baby mothers. These bitches is killing me. Uh, one is the government and the other one's the mafia. Uh, I got one hand in each pocket. So before these bitches bleed me dry, I got to, I got to let them my portfolio. <laughs> I, got, I, got, I got three, the government, the mafia, and Creflo Dollar. So I understand your pain, Ooh. brother. <laughs> and I know one of them is watching right now, too. I love you. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I know they ain't watching, so fuck it. Man. So, um, so yeah, like I said, what made you start getting into the um, podcasting? You know, like, what made you start shifting, you know, during these uh, virtual times? Give us some background on um, um, Spears and Steinberg. Uh, well, it's me and my, my, my road partner, uh, the guy that opens up for me. We're yeah. probably about two years into this podcast. Got like 165 episodes. And, you know, I was always leery at first because I respect the hustle of being able to do like a radio show. And I never thought that I had the ability to do it. But, uh, you know, like I said, you got to you got to keep your eggs in one basket. So I got curious about it. And then once I found out how much money you could make with this shit, Mm -hmm. if you do it right, I was like, fuck it. 
you know, Joe Rogan just signed that hundred million dollar deal with Spotify. Yeah. Cause you know, he got the number one podcast on the market. Mm -hmm. So I was just like, you know what, man, let me throw my hat in the ring and see what happened. It's the one forum left. I think where you could truly showcase freedom of speech uh, without being vilified. So, you know, I, I, I just, I hate having to bite my tongue and I like yeah. being able to say what I want to say. And in this climate of moisture, I think people want to hear that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, man. Like I just started decided to um, start podcasting because of, you know, the NBA. I watch a lot of ESPN and TNT. Sometimes, in my opinion, it's just a lot of characters. I feel like I don't learn nothing when I'm listening to these basketball experts, you know. And so I decided to create my own platform and, and you know, talk basketball. And I feel it's better. You know what I'm saying? I feel like I'm better. And I feel like I get more information out to the public, and you know what I mean. I get a lot of I get a lot of love for it, so that that's why I decided to podcast myself. Yeah. yeah. So, um, for every for every you know, of course, you know, you're a comedian, you grind it your own entire life with this, like a lot of no. So, like, how much harder you had to work to get that yes? I and I'm still it's, it's still it's I'm still working hard. Uh, you know, um, and look. Just my inside on Hollywood, I'm not the most popular cat in the game, you know, from the industry standpoint. Yeah. You know, I got, you know, a lot of rumors about me, a lot of misinformation, a lot of hearsay. Um, and, you know, no, in this business, people don't do self-investigation. They go off of what they hear and go, well, he must be like that. And because I am so opinionated and vocal and I am on the racial shit very hard, that comes with a price tag. Yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of paying for it right now, but I'm hoping that, you know, when the dust settles, uh, I'm still standing. So like, what, what you mean when you say, uh, um, when they have these opinions on you though, you want to uh, mind us uh, elaborate on something? Uh, he's, he's, he's difficult. He's an asshole. He's a hater. He's bitter. You know, I, I, I just don't know when having an opinion turned into hate. You know, I've, I've never gone, I've never said, oh, so-and-so stinks or so-and-so is, is, is the talent is shit. I might've said I didn't like it, but that's my opinion. And it's yeah. subjective. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Just cause I don't necessarily go with the grain that all of a sudden equals hate. I never said so-and-so shouldn't be in that spot. So-and-so shouldn't make their bread. That's, if I'm trying to, if I'm hating on you, you making your income, that's hatred. That's but if it, I'm yeah. telling you, you're not necessarily my cup of tea creatively. That's yeah. an opinion. Exactly. Exactly. And I got uh, two, two more, two more questions for you. So, um, how much is comedy skill for you, and how much is therapy? You know, speaking to other comics, I have, I have also have friends that's comedians as well. You know, um, they describe things as using laughter to supplement their own happiness. You know, basically almost sacrificing it, and you know, being in the business of you know service. You know, how important is it to um, to you to make yourself laugh? Uh, I, I just, you know, I just love to laugh, man. Laughter feels good. You know, yeah. it's, just, it's almost as orgasmic as pussy. You know what I mean? Ain't nothing like a good laugh. Yeah, uh, exactly. So it's just it's one of them things that feels good. Um, yeah. And I like making people laugh. It's something that I have to have in my life. Uh, yeah. I, I once asked people on Instagram, if you could only have one, what would you rather have for the rest of your life, music or comedy? Mm. So, you know, and that's a tough one because nobody ever fucks the jokes. 
<laughs> you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw your um your comedy special on and create my fifth child to you, brother. We're going, we're going to change the narrative on it. It's kind of hard to find your rhythm in your stroke to some jokes. <laughs> I'm a name, the middle name is going to be, uh, it's going to be Aries, man. I'm telling you, I got you on this one, brother. Watch, I'm going to change the narrative. There it is, baby. There it is, baby. You're going to probably produce a funny seed, nigga. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so final question, final question, man. Any any um advice you would give to your younger self now, um right now at this moment? Yeah, I'm gonna give myself the advice that Chris Rock gave me. I I, I went and had dinner with him one time because I was this was right around the time he was doing his show on HBO, and uh I was trying to see if I could get him to produce a show for me. Long story short, towards the end of the, the dinner, he goes, Here's my advice to you: keep writing, always stay funny. And try not to piss these white folks off. Mm. I would I would tell my 18-year-old self, this is a long fight. You know when to bite your tongue. Yeah. Well, that says it, man. That 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 hey, that's everything, man. So I want to thank I want to thank y'all for coming on to this show, man. You know, um, just uh shout out y'all social media so everybody can reach y'all. Man, you I'm on Twitter, man. Oh. D uh, underscore Smitty S-M-I-T-T-E-E. Uh follow your boy there. I also got a blog. You can follow me as zerouthdetention.org. Uh, uh, that way you can kind of see some of the work that we're doing here in King County Public Health, man, to change the narrative. Yep, my my uh, social media uh, handles are all Kendrick Glover. Just go Google Kendrick Glover. Uh, our organization, the website is strongchildren.org uh, because it's better to build strong children than to repair broken men in the words of Frederick Douglass. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem, man, no problem. Uh, Aries Spears, everything is my name. YouTube, Aries Spears. Instagram, Aries Spears. We already know I was banned on Twitter. Uh, you can check me out on Patreon, Aries Spears. And again, the podcast. All you got to do is send me a DM in my Instagram. I'll shoot you the link, baby. All right, cool, cool, man. Oh, yeah, my blog, too, Zero. Thank you, you guys, brother. Yes. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Eric, uh, Kendrick. Uh, Daniel, it was nice and an honor meeting y'all and Peace sharing and time with y'all. Much love to y'all. Much continued su uh, success and stay safe, man. Uh, you too, man. You too. With that being said, we out of here. Thank you for tuning in to the Daniel Artes podcast, powered by Access. Shout out to Access and thank you for um, you know sponsoring the show. With that being said, I am out of here. Salute to everybody for coming on to the show. Peace. Peace and blessings. One love. One love. One love. One love.